This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Joining me, David Trainer, the founder and CEO of New Constructs. He's going to talk to us about some of his earnings metrics. We at Wisdom Tree licensed some of his data for some of our indexes. A really interesting look at how do you measure true earnings, core earnings of companies. We also have Kara Marciscano, who does a lot of work on these earnings numbers. Uh, senior analyst on my team joining us here. Also, please note, Kara and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of some investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of other church affiliates. David, you know, in a in a time where last year was was driven by some uncertainty, a lot of falling earnings. How's your your sense of the earnings environment we're in from from last quarter to this quarter? How are you how are you looking at the markets here? Uh, Jeremy and Kara, happy new year! Good to be with you again. Uh, you know, yes, this is going to be the trickiest year ever. Uh, you know, it was it was pretty easy to call. You know the a steep decline in earnings uh, for all the you know for, for the second, third, fourth quarters of last year, but uh, as we've sort of seen the economy uh, and companies kind of bottom out, uh, it's really going to be tricky to see uh, who's doing well and who's not. Separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, is going to be increasingly difficult. As uh, you know, it's now a proven fact that uh, the footnotes hide a lot of important data that are not found in analyst earnings, uh, companies, estimates, et cetera. So if you're not doing your homework in the footnotes, you're uh, at least a step behind those that have access to better data. Do you have a overall look at what you think about what's what's going to drive any any outlier sectors that, that you think are, are particularly of things that where people might have a misguided view of what's going on right now? You know, I wish it was that easy. You know, look, there are a lot of good companies and really bad companies in, in every sector. Uh, and so I think, you know, placing sort of blind bets on uh, sectors, I don't think it's a great idea. I think you want to be a little bit more surgical. Uh, and, and our data shows that, for example, the tech sector overall looks great, but that performance is dominated by five companies. You take those five companies out and the tech sector looks normal. Uh, and other sectors, you know, are are stronger than others as well. But that typically rests on the shoulders of, of a few outperformers uh, in particular. And you know, look, we're breaking it down to that level, and uh, we uh, advise our clients and partners to do the same because if you've got that data advantage, why not take advantage of it? Yeah, one of the the, the key stocks of focus um, we've been we've been talking about Tesla as one of these hot stocks. It just got added to the S and P five hundred at the end of last year. Uh, and sort of a question on is it profitable? Is it not profitable? Uh, and I think your data is showing not profitable at the moment. Any any commentary around um, sort of Tesla's profits 
Yeah, no, you know, these are tricky, tricky things. And look, companies are always trying to put their best foot forward. I remember this going all the way back to the tech bubble when sort of the pro forma earnings concept was uh, introduced. And look, the the bottom line is that uh, Harvard Business School, MIT Sloan, and the Journal of Financial Economics has uh, featured new constructs as best in the world at identifying sort of the real underlying economic consequence of accounting data, which means we have a better measure of core earnings than anybody else in the business. And when you look at where Tesla is looking to drive profit, is it, it's on an unsustainable revenue stream from these regulatory tax credits uh, that they're able to buy from companies who have yet to ramp up their EV production. Well, we know that, that all these other companies are, are quickly ramping up their EV production. GM made so, several announcements around switching over some of its traditional uh, ICE or incumbent, uh, uh, sorry, combustible internal combustible engine plants to EV plants. And Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes in Europe have been doing this in a big way. So that revenue stream is non-recurring. It's unusual in essence. And so we don't think it's fair to look at that as a part of the normal profitability of Tesla because it's going away. And it's simply a temporary source of uh, profit and, and, and earnings uh, based on an unusual sort of marketplace. Yeah, Kerry, you've done a lot of look at the earnings streams of the markets and sort of valuations of the markets according to David's data. Uh, anything you would say when you look across, maybe we could talk large caps and small caps, as when you think about where valuations are, any, any quick commentary on, on, on what they look like here? For sure. So Tesla is a great example of, you know, a, having a big earnings driver, those non-recurring regulatory credits, and makes a case for using a core earnings number versus, you know, a, an alternative number that has those swings in it. So today, if we look at the S&P 500 on the standardized earnings metric, large caps are at 31 times PE, mid caps at 36, small caps at 53 times, which is incredible. So we know we're at peak valuation levels well above 10-year average. And what's even more interesting is that that small cap part of the market, the S&P 600, a fifth of that index is in negative core earnings. So if you own something that tracks the S&P small cap index, 20% of your exposure is unprofitable companies. So the alternative is screening for, you know, only profitable core earnings companies using the new constructs data set and then if you cut those into large, mid, and small cap baskets, instead of market cap weighting them like you see with the S&P indexes and you weight by earnings, you get a broad market exposure across the side spectrums at much more reasonable valuations. So large caps on a core basis is at 21 times. Again, that's versus the 31 times we were seeing on a non-core basis, so 10 turns below the S&P 500. Um, and, it, and it gets even more drastic down the size spectrum. So for small caps, you could own broad small cap exposure for profitable companies at 14 times rather than 53 times with a fifth of your exposure in unprofitable companies. So it is a really, really powerful tool and metric that David and your new constructs team has built. So it, it's, it's great to see. 
Very interesting numbers. I mean, I think people, you know, you had had, COVID certainly impacted the profitability and of of small caps more than large caps. So, you know, typically you would see something like, you know, 20% of the Russell 2000 not profitable and and a little bit less in the S&P family because they they sort of screen for profits to get in. But um, it's very interesting that even today, you know, you're getting up to 20% not profitable on on that core earnings metric on on the small caps. David, are you seeing anything? Do you have do you, are you, do you guys have a sense of a, sort of an outlook for these things? How they turn around? Any any commentary you could provide on on expectations? Uh, yeah, look, I think we are going to see a bounce back, and I think that's why we've seen early in in 2021 so far the small caps doing well uh, because they are highly leveraged to an economic rebound. Uh, and I think what we're really going to see though is that the tide is maybe not going to be lifting all ships equally. And uh, that's where I think really having the tools to understand real earnings versus uh, false and overstated earnings is going to be helpful because some companies are going to come out of this this really severe economic downturn stronger than others. And uh, those are going to be where you want to place your bets as opposed to just kind of throwing it blindly at, at uh, some of these index um, and, and, and sector profit or sector uh, um, products. We're talking with David Trainer, CEO of New Constructs. We've got Kara Marsiscano, who's a senior analyst on, on my team at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, David, when, when you look at the, some of the other tools, you've been, we've been talking a lot about your earnings metrics. You've also been going to um, some work on the debt side, and, and I think you're, you're sort of rolling out some new analytics across sort of beyond equities to the fixed income side. Any, you want to talk about any of the research you're doing for debt metrics? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, thanks, Jeremy. We... Uh, now provide credit ratings on close to 3,000 companies uh, to complement our equity ratings. And we do this in two ways. Uh, there's a traditional credit rating that's based on unscrubbed accounting data uh, that will mostly mirror what you're going to get from your legacy credit rating firms like S&P and Fitch and Moody's. Uh, and then we have the adjusted credit rating. And the differences are data, right? Differences in our calculations of EBIT differences in our calculations of debt because we're taking into account the assumptions that companies can make to manipulate the level of uh, operating lease debt on their balance sheet or to uh, manipulate the fact that they didn't have to report off-balance sheet debt for a long time. And then, of course, our differences uh, in the calculation of EBIT, which was featured uh, in, in this article forthcoming in the Journal of Financial Economics as material uh, to the prediction of future earnings as well as prediction of stock prices. We, we have a uh, officially independently proven better measure of, of core profits, uh, EBIT, and that's going to mean our ratings are very different from the legacy data providers. Our credit ratings are going to be very different from legacy per- providers, and um, we're seeing a lot of interest in the fixed income community about that difference because they've been using the unscrubbed accounting data forever. It's just what they thought they had to use because that's all there was. And now we've got something different and better. And it's not just us saying it's better. It's Journal of Financial Economics, Harvard Business School, and MIT Sloan. And we, we think that's compelling. And so for, you know, for quant firms like ourselves and, and people who look at data to try to get a sense of how, how much value you can add with these things, do you, do you, how long of a look back do you think you can go back on things like this credit side? Uh, is it historically available? Is it, is it more just sort of current kind of ratings? What, what's your sense there? Yeah, we're going to go back, you know, close to 15 years of data on that front. So, um, 
yeah, there's, there's, you know, our databases go back, uh, you know, well over 20 years. A lot of cases, and I think on the credit rating side, um, there are just a few things that are limiting us going all the way back that far. We're kind of cleaning that, cleaning that up, but we've got at least uh, 15 years of data to, to start with, uh, which is pretty good uh, for for providing some context on how scrubbed superior fundamental data can lead to different conclusions around uh, you know debt and equity ratings. That's great. I mean, there's really not a lot of data providers when you come to fixed income. It's the, we talked about monopolies on the first part, like in fixed income data is one of those areas where there's a very few providers of fixed income information. So so interesting to hear you guys are coming out with some some interesting data there. And, any That's challenges? Exactly is, right. We, we, we had a lot of people asking us for it, like for years. Hey, you know, really great. Yeah, you do all this you know, equity rates. Really great if you do fixed income ratings. And finally, we got around to it. And, and on, on pricing, do you try to connect that to like things people can connect on the prices? Or is that something something separate? On oh, the the you know, the, the uh, bond prices? Yeah. No, yeah, we're not we're not wading yet into that territory. So convexity, duration, all that kind of stuff is a little bit beyond our uh, our uh, realm of expertise. So we're focusing on the fundamentals, the credit quality ratings, uh, where we where we can provide you know, some unique and differentiated insights. Very cool. Um, yeah, I want to come back to some of the earnings topics we were talking about on, on sort of core earnings. One of the, the, the sort of hot debated topics, we had a professor from NYU on uh, towards the end of last year, Baruch Lev, who wrote a book. I think he called it like the end of accounting uh, or something like that. And, you know, he is big on this topic of intangibles and sort of the big investments a lot of the tech companies make into R&D that, you know, he thinks shouldn't really be reflected of quote unquote earnings that sort of they make these investments now into these long-term payoffs. And so, you know, sort of biases sort of an expense, you know, higher now, sort of lower earnings, but it really leads to future revenue growth. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about that with you, but any, any views on this, this question about the intangible investment companies are making tech companies in particular, but uh, you know, is that, is that something you think is credible line of work? What, what's your, what's your view there? I, I think it's an absolutely valid point. It's a great point. I think the way we go about addressing that issue is not to try to pretend we can accurately assess the value of particular assets on anybody's balance sheet. Look, I think markets have a hard enough time assessing the overall aggregate value of a firm's assets, right? Uh, that's what the stock market is for. Uh, and so I, I think it's more about Approaching valuation in the way that we do in New Constructs, which is to reverse engineer what the future cash flows have to be to justify a stock price. And I think parsing out and trying to identify the specific value of assets on any kind of balance sheet or to market the market is a futile exercise, right? You know, how, how can we pretend that we're getting the individual assets exactly valued correctly if we can't get the overall company value correctly? And we all know that you know, the value of assets is closely tied to the value of other assets. There's synergies. That's why companies or corporations are put together to bring these things together and create synergies between multiple, you know, assets and people. So uh, the idea that we might put specific assets on the balance sheet um, to reflect what these, the value of this R&D investment is, is, is I think, you know, it's, it's a fool's errand. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't tremendous value in the R&D spend. But I think rather than try and pretend that we can predict what that value is, we should look at it in the context of what investors get about get out of understanding R&D investment. And I think the answer to that question is the answer we try to answer in, um, or provide in all of our valuation analysis is, is 
what I think necessarily the value of these assets are. It's what Mr. Market thinks the value of those assets are and whether or not I think that value is crazy high, crazy low, or reasonably correct. And if it's uh, either the first two, well, then I've got more work to do. If it's reasonably correct, well, then I can look at that stock as fairly valued and move on to something else. So I think the, the expectations quantification approach to valuation really addresses the issue around hey, what are these intangibles worth? Um, because trying to assess intangibles outside of the context or not including the context of the other assets and the overall organization, I think is a fool's errand. That, that's a really interesting uh, sort of line of, of, of work there. So uh, talk through a little bit how you guys go through factoring and what's factored into stock prices from these fundamental metrics to sort of arrive at what's what's baked into the price today, connecting those fundamentals to current pricing. How do you sort of make that link and and draw in, you know, is it reasonable or not? Well, that's, you know, that's part of why I built new constructs, because the the reverse dynamic discounted cash flow model you got to use to do this kind of work is it's a big model. Doing it in Excel is kind of tough. And so, look, I was, I've been doing this work for over 20 years. I started doing it at Credit Suisse, and I, I learned this technique from Michael Mobison, you know, who wrote a book, Expectations Investing, with Al Rappaport, focused on the benefits of reverse engineering cash flow expectations. And and so, you know, the, the first thing you have to start with, Jeremy, is a better understanding of today's profits, right? If, if you want to assess the market's expectations for future profits, you always need to do that in the context of what existing profits are, right? How much of a difference is Mr. Market projecting for future profitability compared to where the company is today to give you a sense of how much risk is in the stock. So, so like for Tesla, you know, right, where they're, they're uh, ex, you know, generating around, what, 500,000 or producing around 500,000 cars this year, uh, our reverse DCF valuation shows that the market price of Tesla today implies that they're going to produce around 45 million cars in 2030. That's what they got to do to justify a stock price of around 850 bucks, right? I think it's 950 now. Uh, we haven't updated it in a little while because you know who knows what's going on with that stuff. But you get the idea, right? And 45 overall, million cars. They may be doing a million correct. next year. Is like this aggressive, aggressive number. Well, yes, and and you know what? You got to put in the context the fact that that um, industry experts only expect the electric vehicle market to be around 30 million in 2030, right? So Tesla's supposed to be like 140 percent. Or 50% of the market. Um, that's how ridiculous the valuation is. And that's the kind of analysis we like to do because I don't want to have to say, oh, buy, sell, hold, it's you know, expensive on a PE, whatever. I say, look, here's the expectation the stock price apply, imply. You be the judge. You know, I think there are people out there that believe Tesla's going to do that. <laughs> I've done some interviews on some other other shows like this, uh, you know, like the, you know, some of these podcasts that a lot of the Tesla fans have, and they firmly believe, oh, yeah, Tesla's going to be able to do that, and it's not it's just going to be cars, it's going to be Solar panels, blah, 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 blah. Taxi fleet, self-driving hand, taxi fleet. Correct, right, which the, you know was a real success, I think, uh, in, in a northern European country. I think they tried to they, – they did deal with one of those countries for something like 1,000 taxis, and I think they delivered less than 100. So, But the, the other way to use this valuation analysis is, is on the flip side of things, a company like GM, which we made a long call on a couple, of, you know, a couple months ago. Um, and maybe, you know, originally kind of positioned GM as, as a superior pick to Tesla a couple of years ago because its stock price implies that its profits will permanently decline, right? So the, the idea is to get a sense of, you know, where the market is overly enthusiastic and overly pessimistic. The old 
um, Ben Graham thing. You know, Mr. Mr. Market can be really depressed. He can be really enthusiastic. And, you know, that's where investors make money. And that's what we focus on quantifying. And I think it does start with a better sense of what today's profitability is, which is a specialty of ours. Thanks, David. So I was looking at your, your site, and you guys track this new Constructs 2000 basket that consists of the largest 2000 U.S. companies by market cap that you guys cover. So speaking of today's profitability, I saw that you guys mentioned that technology, consumer non-cyclicals, and healthcare sectors were the only um, parts of the market that saw a rise in their core earnings um, in 2020. So as you look ahead to 2021 profitability, are you seeing maybe a, a shift in that in that trend, maybe gearing more towards cyclicals that had their earnings depressed in 2019? What are your, some, of your, some of your views on, you know, today's profitability in the market? And if you're working backwards like you guys like to do, what are the opportunities that you're seeing today, industry or, or sector, or even single company-wise? Yeah, that's that's a great point. You know, the, those three sectors you mentioned, uh, you know, had a, a much better 2020 than a lot of sectors. I know energy and and a couple others uh, really had a, a tough time in in 2020. Uh, the technology performance, uh, it, it's still dominated by a few of the kind of the heavyweights, uh, the top five firms in that. Healthcare is a little bit more, more diversified, um, and consumer uh, discretionary, consumer staples. A little bit, little bit um, more diversified as well, uh, but we do think, yeah, the cyclicals should should have a better year this year, assuming the, there's an economic rebound. Um, if there isn't, I think we'll see more of the same in, in 2021. Uh, I don't have a lot of prognostications on what's going to happen uh, for 2021. It's not so much our gig, as much as it is just trying to identify where Mr. Market has prognostications that we believe to be uh, unrealistically high or low. So, yeah, sorry, I, I don't uh, – my crystal ball is not quite clear on, on that part, Kara. <laughs> no worries. I mean, I think this morning we saw some of the large banks report, and they, you know, released some of those reserves that they had in place or that cushion for um, events where consumers or businesses default on their loans and they can't pay them back. So I think, you know, that is a, a positive signal, at least for, for some of those more cyclically geared financials and – um, obviously, time will tell. None of us have a, a crystal ball, but hopefully, hopefully, we start to see some of those those parts of the market, like financials that tend to be underrepresented um, in market cap weighted benchmarks today, um, have more more positive momentum going forward in 2021. Yeah, that's a great way to to phrase it, Kara. Right? Like we want to look at where profitability looks good relative to market cap or valuation. Yeah, finance, financials have really been unloved for a while, and J.P. Morgan's been one of our top picks. It's in our see-through-the-dip thesis and on our focus list. You know, as a best-in-brand bank, that's trading as if its profits are going to permanently decline by 30 or 40 percent, right? And um, it got hit a lot by uh, the, the COVID depression or, or economic decline um, for good reason, uh, and as you said, a lot of these banks over-reserved. You know, they learned their lesson in the financial crisis, and now we're going to see profits, you know, better than expected because they're not going to need as much of those reserves maybe as needed because they're smarter about uh, their lending. And um, and a lot of these 
you know, a lot of our, our stock picking uh, approach in the last year has focused on businesses that came in to the economic decline and to this tough environment with industry-leading profitability uh, and, and, and strong market share. Uh, and we think those firms are poised in many ways to come out of all this better than they went in because they're going to pick up market share from the firms that don't make it through. Firms that had poor profitability, that were struggling in what was a terrific environment already, um, you know, because, you know, with interest rates so low and so much capital flowing in into markets, you know, a lot of companies got funded or got funding that maybe they didn't deserve. And uh, they're going to, a lot of those companies are not going to make it through. And the industry leaders who've got great returns on capital have been good capital allocators are going to pick up market share and come out of it better than they were. And I think J.P. Morgan is one of those. It's interesting hearing about some of these lists that you guys are maintaining, David, and and sort of and we talked about the sort of the debt ratings as a new initiative for new constructs. Any other as you think about the big research projects, things that you're adding to your your offering for people, you know, other developments in the new constructs data sets that you think are are worth people looking at for the value added your your data can provide. Yeah, no, there's there's three things, and that's really just uh, the first two are, are related to. Um, Distribution. So, you know, we have partnerships uh, uh, that we formed last year with with IX Cloud uh, in order to to further uh, our reach. Um, and you know, it's it's a dual delivery system. Um, uh, clients of IX Cloud can get our reported fundamentals, which is the unscrubbed data, um, at an extremely low price. Um, and we're we're happy to give away reported commoditized data that a lot of people pay the legacy data providers a lot of money for. For a, a very very low price, close to free, um, and our premium data, our scrub stuff, the core earnings, all these adjustments, that stuff is a premium product. Uh, we're also partnered with uh, Apex Clearing uh, to provide to provide uh, uh, the, the the technology that we use to provide this better data and research to more of the self directed audience. We're really excited about those partnerships that really are kicking off this year. The last piece of work that we're doing is, is with Lucina Research. Um, and, and those folks have been doing a deep dive on exactly how to monetize this unique proprietary fundamental data set that only we have on core earnings. And really the difference between core earnings and reported accounting data and consensus earnings. Uh, and looking at the distortion, as we call it, uh, as a way to pick stocks and to build specific portfolios around that and, and the work that we've done there we expect we'll produce some very compelling model portfolios that we're already looking to put some live money around uh, as we finish up that work on both the long and the short side. So three new ways for people to take advantage of our best-in-world data, now proven uh, by the Journal of Financial Economics. Very interesting stuff. And eventually getting to international stuff, is that still a, a working project? <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I'm sorry for leaving that off because these other things are happening now. They're like they're all happening this month, uh, this summer. We're expecting to really to really start knocking out covering international companies. All of our partners uh, have been banging on us for that. Uh, what's good in the U.S. is even better in the U.S. We feel because there's just not as many analysts in, in other parts of the world, so the core earnings insights could potentially be even more profitable. And we are retooling our our technology as we speak. Our proprietary robo analyst technology we use to parse these documents. Uh, automatically to do more companies fully automatically and, and leverage that core technological capability to not just get data faster and better, but much cheaper. 
Tom. This is this is great, David. We've been talking with David Trainer, founder and CEO of New Constructs. We had Kara Marciscano, Sirius of Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Mark is podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.